So, what is, or what was, the Reformation? I remember asking my mom that on a plane flight when I was in college and had just kind of run into Christian history and was trying to figure things out. And I don't remember anything she told me as far as the answer goes, though she formulated one and gave it to me on the, on the plane there. turned out the it was, it was an interest of mine to look into this thing and figure out, well, what happened back then? Why is this, why is this time important? Why is this something that occurred in the church, and why should we pay attention to it? There's a lot to pay attention to. Uh, why, why the Reformation? And we could also say, which is in keeping, I think, with a lot of modern history, instead of referring to it as the Reformation in the singular, to refer to it as the Reformations, which is to say there's a lot of things going on all around the world that aren't all the same. And so to call it under one name, maybe, maybe stretches, maybe doesn't. I don't, I'm, I'm plenty happy talking about an era of time in which things occurred and they weren't all the same things. So welcome to like, you know, studying history. It's, it's good to have handles for periods of time. So where does, just as a quick question, where does the Reformation fit? Any, any thoughts or, or even what, what do you, in your mind, do you associate with the Reformation? What words or what things? You know, I kind of gave a blurb there as far as what it was. We'll read that in a second. But it's kind of just pulling you to begin with, you know, what, what things come to mind, uh, what things are around the Reformation, that era of time in the church. Yeah. So, we you know, the Catholic Church, uh, scriptures were only in Latin that nobody could read except a few. So, it was, the scriptures were, I'm, I'm guessing, were sacred, always have been sacred, and were not accessible up until this period of time and more focus was given on God's holy word. That's, that's a pretty good way to put it. Um, so the scriptures, the Bible, is something that comes to immediate preeminence in the Reformation in a way that it kind of hadn't before in the same focus with the intent of having people read the scriptures or having them have the scriptures read to them, if nothing else, because you could read the scriptures in Latin, the kind of common translation for the last thousand years of the church, but you could read it out loud in Latin, but no one really understood it because very few would be able to read or listen to understand Latin. But if you got them into the what we call the uh, vernacular languages, the German that Luther translated into and so on, different different languages, well, then the people can still, they can hear it and understand it, still not, might not be able to read it, right? You sit down and, and decipher the words, but you can still hear it and understand it. Uh, so that's an important aspect. The scriptures are very central, the kind of, almost the unleashing of the scriptures um, among the, the people of God in the Reformation. Thank you. What else comes to mind with Reformation? Yeah, Nancy. That one man would have the courage to go against the Pope. Okay. Yep, so uh, we got, in particular, Martin Luther, though there are plenty of others who, follow in with that same it's, you know, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me uh, in front of all of the worldly powers available <laughs> right? all of the tanks, all the missiles pointed at that one man saying, sorry, can't do it um, so yeah, that's, there's interesting courage, courageous stand of, of people and Martin Luther preeminently among them right, uh, yeah, thank you Desiderius Erasmus translated the Bible into Mm-hmm. Many centuries before, and he had gotten it wrong in several places, especially about uh, the business of penance. And that's where the whole system of penance and purgatory came from in the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, what was the guy's name that was running around in Germany? Tetzel. Glorious Tetzel. Right. Yeah. 
views. So there's that kind of immediate fuse in Saxony around Luther, around indulgences and so on that uh, we probably won't talk much about, but that's definitely a fuse there. There are other fuses other places in Europe, things that are going off, but they don't seem to go off with the same, like, explosive power uh, initially that it does in Saxony and Germany. Yeah, darling. Okay, printing press is enormous as far as, as far as how this thing happens, right? How, and that's so on the, uh, on the back page of how. Yeah, the three things, darkness of the church, mass communication, which is this kind of movable style printing press, and then the, the uh, Islamic invasions from the east. All those things make an enormous difference on the success of the Reformation and how it happens then, how it happens when it happens. Right? In other words, how God's ordained the thing to go down. We can kind of see it from, from afterwards. Uh, uh, Karen, you had your hand up? I think. Okay. Good. Well, let's read this little blurb, and that might zero us in on at least what I think is the centerpiece of the Reformation. Um, we'll grab Bill afterwards. Okay, so let's read this, the, the blurb here. The Reformation was a Christian revival of unparalleled intensity, unparalleled possibly except for the first century, really, maybe the fourth, as far as real explosions of Christianity, which plunged Europe into bloody warfare for over a century. We don't often think of that, but that's what happened. Europe was a battlefield for 130 years, and the, toward the end of it, terrible. Terrible wars, okay, and so on. Anyway, there's more of that maybe to come. This revival's central theological concern was about how sinners are received and forgiven by the Holy One. That really is. Now, I want you to think about this. Like, just right now, what's the buzz? Like, what's in the news, uh, in the world? What's you know, what are people? What are the ideas that people are really you know excited about and, and have in their hands and they're fired up about? People are talking about it. Just a couple examples will do. Sure. Democracies and, you know, whatever, uh, you know, MAGA hats are around and that's the end of the So there's this kind of like, you know, there's the, the p- politics really is very central to our kind of, our human buzz and what we're doing. Well, just take that one and forget the rest. You can talk about all sorts of things uh, in today's culture that are kind of the buzz. This was the buzz. This was it. How are sinners received and forgiven before a holy God? That's what's moving nations. That's what was moving people. That's what's dividing and causing bloodshed, is how you answer that question. That's the issue of the day for everyone. Right? It's not the, the kind of silly little political things we chase around. This was the buzz. And I think that's interesting to go back and say, well, in the 16th century, in a certain manner of thinking, the mindset of everyone is so Christian that this is the central thing that they're fighting about, as opposed to some other thing where, at our time, like Christianity, who cares? How about let's fight about something else? You know, it's kind of the situation we're in now. Christianity is a long path being the centerpiece of, of public debate and interest. Not so in the 16th century. Not at all. Right? The, 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 these doctrines are central. And they move armies. They drive politics. And politics drives them. And armies drive them too, right? It's not just one direction. But um, Okay, so the revival's central theological concern was about how sinners are received and forgiven by the Holy One. 
Here's a question. Are the scriptures intended by God as sufficient revelation for the church's mission to proclaim and minister the saving treasures of Jesus Christ? That's a, a functioning question in the middle of all that. How are sinners saved? And what's the place of the scriptures? What is the place of the scriptures in the church's mission to proclaim Christ and save sinners? Is it sufficient, or, or is there another deposit of revelation uh, that's also required? In tradition, would be the, the real kind of two angles. Or possibly the Anabaptists. We don't need the scriptures or the law. We have the spirit. Thank you. Uh, those, that's kind of the range of answers that people are coming to the table with, which is the same range of answers today. Right? The, 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 the possibilities really aren't any different today. Uh, do you have a comment, Bill, a question? Both uh, tangentially related, only that uh, Augustine, um, 1,200 years prior, was dealing with, there was a Reformation sort of going on there after the fall of Rome, you know, a long time before, and even asked a question regarding the Catholic Church, of the temporary punishments of this life to, oh, excuse me, where did it go? Against the opinion of those who think that the punishments of the wicked after death are purgatorial. They were dealing with false teachings already that you could pray someone out of their trouble and get them to heaven, blah, blah, blah. Good. And just a word, purgatory is not for the damned. Purgatory is for the saved. Right? So, um, no one's no one's saying, hey, you can throw some money in. I don't think. I mean, I haven't run across any way. Even, you know. You can throw some money in the coffer and get people out of hell is not the issue. You can throw some money in the coffer and mitigate or lessen the suffering of saved ones as they suffer through purgatory, because that's what purgatory is, is redemptive suffering. Okay, so it's a little different. You know, it's it's kind of easy to put simple words to it and misrepresent what's going on there, but there are a lot of words put to a lot of stuff. Uh, but anyway, purgatory is the place for the saved, not the damned. Okay, that's that's an important reality there. So, Nevertheless, erroneous. Nevertheless, erroneous and an enormous cash cow, <laughs> it turns out. Oh, yeah. uh, anyway, those are easy to see even today. There are cash cows in the church. It's always been that way. Uh, there are false teachers who think of godliness as a means of gain. The scripture says, okay, well, there you go. Look around. Right? And that's, it's not too hard to find that sort of, same sort of thing today. The, uh, any other comments or thoughts on just the introduction as far as what the Reformation is? When it is, is important. I want to get to these slogans here. Let me, let me do when, and then the slogans. I should have done when first. Actually, as soon as I sent it, I thought, nah, I should have done when first. Just to locate it in time. So I have it in this. We all, we all know that, uh, October 31st, 1517, is the date of the Reformation. Okay, we, we, say, we can put a date and say it started there because Luther, you know, had these 95 theses, which are just 95 statements about things theological and church-related and doctrinally related, that he wants to debate the academics. He wants the other professors at Wittenberg and other professors more broadly to come and debate these things. That's what he wants from that. What happens from it is something entirely different. People take it down, start making copies of it, translate it, and it, it becomes this like fuse that lights off a Reformation uh, all through Europe. And we'll get to the where in a moment, but and beyond. So October 31st is a nice day to remember. And then say, okay, we have Reformation Day um, tomorrow. And, of course, Halloween is All Hallows' Eve, the eve of All Saints' Day, All Hallows' Day. So that's, uh, it's on the Christian calendar for a long time, this, this Halloween, this All, All Hallows' Eve. And anyway, Luther happens to post these, uh, these particular issues of debate, not for the public, Again, they're written in Latin. It's like, it's, it's, so it's not like, the, hey, the peasants come up, hey, everybody, look. 
No, right? But it's, it is somebody taking it out and saying, hey, listen to this. And reading it off in German so people can understand it. And then it kind of it goes. So we have, we have the date of October 31st, 1517. And then I, I stretched to October, some point in October, and they met a couple different times, as far as I know, for the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, uh, which is the end of the Thirty Years' War from 1618-48, which is probably the worst bloodshed Europe saw until World War I. Okay, so Napoleon notwithstanding, whatever else. So the terrible times. And they're all religious wars. Kill the Catholics. Kill the Protestants. And pack Catholics and Protestants together, kill the Anabaptists. That's kind of how this whole thing went. Um, so then it went and it went until Europe was bled dry and they couldn't take it anymore and said no more religion. No more religion in state. And this is the, they, they kind of perceive it as the cause, or a cause, which certainly is, of the violence that has rocked Europe for over a century. And they say we're done with religious wars. No more wars of religion. And religion's out. Christianity's out. It's no longer the, uh, the player on the political realm that it had been prior to that. And in some sense, praise the Lord for it, because the bloodletting was terrible. Right? Something needed to change. So we have this Reformation. It actually includes what usually is called Reformation and the period of post-Reformation orthodoxy. That phrase, post-Reformation orthodoxy, has to do with the the teachings and positions of the Reformed, the Lutheran, and so on, Roman Catholics, particularly as articulated in their institutions of learning in the universities. When the professors of theology get around and start writing long, you know, long, detailed doctrinal treatises, knowing that as a Reformed uh, minister, as a Reformed professor, you have the Lutherans to think about, you have the Anabaptists to think about, you have the Roman Catholics to think about, and, and, and others, right? So there's, there's all this very detailed, worked-out theology that comes after the Reformation, and um, anyway, I'm kind of including that period in there as the, as the period of the Reformation. So it's a little bit generous as far as the time goes on the when. Any questions on the when? So I'll give it 130 years or so in, uh, in, in the early modern period of European history. It's maybe a way of putting it again. Yeah, Kim? I would say it actually maybe not generous enough. Because like 100 years before this, you have like John Wycliffe, who was definitely like a spark. He didn't set off a forest fire. But right. there's other people before this, too, that were... Were like precursors to it. So we have, thank you, we have precursors specifically in these kind of doctrines that the Reformation comes up um, with in, in Proffers and Pops goes, where these other guys before, it didn't pop, it didn't go, it didn't have the same power. Though oftentimes the, the teachings were the same, the doctrines were similar, you know, from Wycliffe to um, the one you mentioned. Did you mention Wycliffe? Wycliffe was the one I mentioned. Yeah, there's another one there. And Huss over there, yeah. So these, again, around Europe, right, they're not just all in one place. Um, so yeah, Ed. But also, on the other end of the timeline, we, though things may have settled down on the continent uh, in Great Britain, they're still, you know, to a lesser extent, but infighting among, uh, over uh, religious beliefs so yeah. much that we ended up here sure. on, on yeah. this continent. It floats around and, and keeps going. So we can talk about the Reformation from creation until consummation. <laughs> That'll be the time frame. Okay. <laughs> All right, so the slogans here quickly that, that you, you've been familiar, I suppose, although maybe, maybe not entirely, with the solas of the, of, the, uh, of the Reformation. The first slogan is that post telebrus lux, which is after darkness, light. That's, that's a Reformation slogan, and part of that you have to understand is the darkness of what preceded the Reformation. That's part of what's giving, what's giving rise to this uh, revival is how terrible... In many ways, the church was prior. 
And um, so that's, a, that's an important one for us. I'm not sure if that's going to be addressed. Not really. Um, but if you, if you have watched Luther movies uh, or studied his life at all, he has the famous trip to, to Rome, which he, think, he thinks is going to be a good thing and a, a blessing for him, and it turns out to be just utterly disgusting. Um, and and that's, that's kind of the darkness. It's a, good, it's a good vignette into the darkness of the church at the time. Um, even where much wickedness is simply just ignored, right? Uh, much wickedness in the church is ignored, and, and that's, a, that's a major issue. It's a major issue not just for the reformers within the Protestant ranks, but it's a major issue for the reformers within the Roman Catholic ranks as well. In fact, it's kind of preeminently within the Roman Catholic ranks. They kind of dial in their theology, but they really do kind of work the practice of the church in a much tighter way after the Reformation, after the Counter- or Catholic Reformation um, that comes to the Council of Trent later on. It takes a long time to get that together. But more on that some other time, I guess. After darkness, light is important. Because we get, we get spooked by the darkness. We think there is no light because we see darkness. But Christ Jesus, who is in us, is greater than he is in the world. There's light. Christ is that light. He'll bring the light. He brought the light here. And if he's brought it many times like this before, he'll bring it again. So we trust Jesus Christ to bring his light into the darkness of human sin, even the, the human sin within the church. Uh, and we're not in any way immune to that. Right? We have our own struggles and own blind spots with our own sins. It's easy to look back 500 years and say, oh, yeah, how crazy. And it was. Um, but then we've got to go farther than that and, and bring the, you know, the lights onto ourselves, onto ourselves as far as uh, our own temptations to give in to the world, to have worldly ways of thinking and doing things predominate. Okay, the five solas, sola scriptura, this order in scripture alone, being sufficient revelation of the word of God to show us that we're justified by faith alone. Okay, the issue of sola fide is justification, the doctrine of justification, that is how God receives us and forgives us of our sins in Christ Jesus. Right? Not, not, not the issue, although it's related to sanctification, which is also by faith, but not in the same way. But the, the focus here is on justification. Uh, sometimes people shorthand it and say, salvation's by, by faith, salvation's by grace. Like, yeah, maybe. But that's not fine enough of a point, I don't think, to understand the slogan well. Uh, because the justification by faith alone is a different setup than sanctification by faith. Right? Because sanctification involves our work. God works in us, and, and it's, it's a work he does in us, as opposed to just a mere act where he forgives our sins and receives us as righteous in Christ Jesus by faith alone. That is to say, in trusting in Jesus alone. So the sola fide and sola gratia are linked. Sola gratia is a much bigger category, saying this whole salvation is of grace. But justification by faith alone is key to what the Reformers are doing. All of them. Right? I mean, all of them. And that's all, it's certainly all we call the, the magisterial reformers. Magisterial means that they're in cahoots one way or another with the, the civil magistrate. Right? It's, it's within the structures of power that these reformers are operating. So they're not throwing off the state. They're actually trying to work within the state, state powers, uh, to, uh, to reform the church. So you can think of Luther, who worked within the state powers of, in, in Saxony and so on. In fact, he's covered by state powers and protect, protecting and everything. Uh, he didn't throw them off. That wasn't part of the Reformation. The, what we call the Radical Reformation, sometimes called Anabaptist uh, and so on, that's a, that's a shakier ground there. 
where there's a lot of social things that are going on, partially because the rejection of infant baptism is a rejection of citizenship within your realm. At a certain point, they're linked. Um, and so I've, I've heard, you know, Baptist pastors talk about it like it's sheerly theological, but it's not. There's a good deal of social problems that are built into the radical understanding of the Reformation, casting off a lot of civil restraints, a lot of civil uh, considerations, even kind of making their own thing of Munster, which is a great horror show of the Anabaptists where they take power and it's a big, huge mess and the, the leaders all get killed and stuck up in baskets for years so we can see them and remember, don't do that um, sort of thing. Anyway, and then, so the Magisterial Reformation here um, is kind of what we're looking at mostly. That's certainly where we come out of, though in America we want to like separate church and state. Right, we have this notion of, of separation. The magisterial reformers did not have that. <laughs> it was not part of their, of their psyche. But a division of labors kind of always has been. In other words, it's not the same thing to rule in the church as it is to rule in the state, but both rule under God in his word would be the, the, the sense in the Reformation. And certainly I think the sense in which we would understand the Bible ideally, um, even in our own time, with this uh, Separation of powers, you know, that we have in, in the American system. Anyway, any, any thoughts or, or questions in that little messy deal? I remember listening to a guy give a presentation on something. It was for classical conversations, getting trained, and he knew he, he, he would tell you, he knew a ton of this. He loved the stuff he was teaching, but he taught it in such a way that I couldn't get any of it. Like you know a ton, but man, you're not communicating it very well, or at least in an ordered way that I can get, and because I don't know what you're going to talk about. Right? I'm not familiar like you are. That kind of thing happens, so come me some slack, eh? So, anyway, any questions? All right. So the who, we kind of quickly go through these. I just wanted you to see a few of the important names. There are so many, so many people tied in with the Reformation uh, in each city, because we don't have the nation states like we do after you know, the middle of the 19th century. Uh, so the middle of the 1800s and, and the late 1800s is really the rise of the nation state. Nations coming together, Italy as a nation, Germany as a nation, that kind of thing. We don't have that back then. Okay, we have oftentimes city-states. Here's a city that kind of rules over an area around it, and that's the major uh, political entity is the city oftentimes. Uh, then there are larger kind of political entities, including the Holy Roman Empire, which is this large swath of Central Europe that is not organized in any particular way politically. Right? There's, there's all kinds of different fiefdoms and kingdoms and rulers, but they're all supposedly under the Holy Roman Emperor, and if he wants to turn his swords at them, he can make that be the case, uh, which, which goes on a little bit later in the Reformation here. But anyway, every, every city, often, cities will have their own kind of like preeminent reformers or people, you know, a handful of folks will stand in the gap and say, we want this city... Say, you take Geneva, for example. So before Calvin's in Geneva, I didn't put Farrell on the list of people, but there's a reformer in, in, in Geneva who comes in and starts preaching the gospel, preaching the doctrines of the Reformation, and moving the city toward taking on the Reformation, throwing off Rome, getting, kicking out the, the Roman hierarchy, and, and, and somehow instituting a new shape of church government, which is a problem. In fact, Calvin is great for that. So is a... Um, no, I can't think of the guy's name from Scotland. It's not Knox. It's after him. Anyway, I'll think of it later. But there, there are reformers that come and really help shape the church structure because you have to have that structure for longevity. Right? The, the polity, the shape of church government is important. You might not see it every day. You might not think of it every day, but the reformers knew it. That if you're going to cast off one form of tyranny, you have to bring something else. And what does the scripture say? What should we do? What has the, the history of the church taught us as we come to try to organize church 
polity or church government. So I got names and dates. You all know Martin Luther, see his dates, born in 83, died in 46. You can think of that kind of span of time. Uh, and he's, uh, he's from Saxony. He's under the Holy Roman Empire, and he's a German. And, of course, the city of Wittenberg is where he ends up uh, doing most of his work, and he's associated with that city, though, of course, he's not from there. That's kind of the case with all these guys. They all are going somewhere else, usually because of some kind of persecution. They got to leave one place and go somewhere else. That's the case with um, Bootser down there. But we got Huron Zwingli. He's another famous name. Usually have Luther and Zwingli kind of pitted against each other as, as two kind of two major arms of the Reformation or two major lakes of the Reformation. And indeed, he's from Zurich. If I spelled that right, I think it did. Um, within the Swiss Confederation. Now the Swiss had kind of uh, had their own, and I don't know it very well, but their own political setup where each city ruled over is uh, a canton, which is like just a, um, a region, you know, like Presbyterian is now. And, and then they had to kind of deal with power among themselves, but they were certain they didn't want that ultramontane power, which is to say the power from over the mountains down that Italian peninsula in Rome. They're sure they didn't want that. Um, and so you get the, the Reformation kind of settles into Switzerland pretty rapidly. Uh, it kind of fits where they're, where they're at. Martin Bootser, or Bucher, um, We'll call him Bootser because I think that's his kind of standard pronunciation nowadays. Um, ends up at Strasbourg. He, he ends up leaving France. He's a Frenchman. Uh, ends up in Strasbourg teaching there, actually discipling Calvin for a few years there in Strasbourg. And he himself ends up in England uh, teaching at Oxbridge somewhere. Um, I'm not sure where. But anyway, he's out of the Holy Roman Empire as well. This is, these are just three names of scores of names. Uh, but they're three kind of big names, and they're first generation. So these are guys that are... Kind of like, you know, and, and, you know anyway, they're carving out not only Reformation doctrine, but the Reformation practices. How is the church going to run? What does the church in Strasbourg look like now that we've gotten rid of the, you know, the papist archbishops and the hierarchy from, the, from the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church? What do we do? And these are all kind of first generation guys. You can see their dates. Uh, I gave seven generations that were associated with those first generation guys. So Philip Melanchthon is uh, an, an enormous scholar that comes and aids Luther. He comes into Wittenberg, and Luther's just excited to have this uh, classic scholar and linguistic scholar and a theological scholar as well come. Um, although, when it comes down to it, Melanchthon kind of sold Lutherism down the river. Right? He, was, he was a bad second-generation reformer, although good friends with Calvin, interestingly enough. And uh, he himself, kind of an Arminian. Right? So he's, uh, he's, not, he's not holding the sovereignty of grace, He's an interesting character in, in Lutheran history because he's so not Luther. Not only in his temperament, but even in his doctrine, as it goes down to the point where after Luther's death, there's a division within the Lutheran church over the Philippists, guys who were following Philip Melanchthon, and were called the Genesio Lutherans, which means like traditional, original. And the, the guys who would say, no, that's not what we've been doing. This guy, Philip, is leading us astray. So you have Philip Melanchthon. Check out his years there so you can see he lived 30 years longer. Um, well, not that, 15 years longer than his, his, uh, his teacher, Luther. Flip the page, we've got Bullinger, who is a, a, a second-generation reformer, very similar in that respect to what, what Melanchthon comes in and does for Luther. Comes in with like, a lot of intellectual firepower, a lot of, you know, and, and it's not that Luther didn't have it, but he's a busy guy, reforming everything, you know. It takes some energy, right? Uh, and when you read him, he's not particularly systematic. 
right? He's like, here's a problem. There's a problem. Address this. Here's, you know, so there's a lot of kind of putting out fires and stuff, but to try to pull a systematic, a systematic understanding of theology from Luther's stuff. Uh, it takes someone like uh, Melanchthon and then a Martin Buber later on, um, who, who really does that for the Lutheran circles. But Bollinger does that, at least in Zurich, for the Reformed. And then the, the second generation, John Calvin, after Bootser, his disciple by Bootser, you can see his years. Um, and uh, it's amazing how much he got done in those, those years. Anyway, there's some names and dates for you. And uh, I know that people don't like history because of names and dates. Too bad! Um, you have to have names and dates. That's part of like, how we like, figure things out and remember them is knowing names and dates. It's hard, sure. It's embarrassing when you can't remember like when someone was. Okay. Get past it. But here are some names and dates, at least a few first-generation and a few second-generation reformers uh, that are very important. Any thoughts? When we went to the Reformation wall in Geneva, there's two other guys along with Calvin and Luther on that wall that are Beza and Perel. Yep. Those are their last names. Yep. I'm throwing them out like I know. I have no idea. But um, anyway, whatever made you make it to the wall was be kind of a big deal. Yeah, totally. You, you made the wall, right? Yeah. So, yeah, Beza is the protege of Calvin. Right? So he comes in after Calvin, who himself is a second-generation reformer, right? So he's kind of third-generation reformer. But in Geneva, and he kind of takes over what Calvin's been doing there. Uh, Pharrell is the one before Calvin in Geneva who comes and kind of preaches the Reformation and announces God's curses upon Calvin and his leisurely studies if he doesn't come help us reform this city. And Calvin a, a thousand times know that he wants to go to that crazy city of Geneva and try to get mixed up in those politics. Uh, but he did. He stayed and got kicked out. And he didn't want to go back. And he did go back and he stayed. Right. So Pharrell's the, the kind of first reformer coming into Geneva. Calvin's the great reformer coming into Geneva. And then Beza follows suit after him. Um, and then is it Knox who's on there? Yeah. Yeah. So he's the one who comes. You know, John Knox comes from England, when, especially when Bloody Mary comes to, the, the, comes to power, and many of the Protestants say, okay, bye now. And they go across the uh, channel and go to different places. Well, Geneva is one of the places they go, and Knox goes there and, and learned a tremendous amount about Christianity and Christian society and how to run things to take it back to England and particularly to Scotland. Right, to reform the Scottish churches, which he went around preaching that. And then, who's the guy who wrote Moby Dick? Um, Melville. So he's, that's Herman Melville. Right? There's, Andrew, there's Andrew Melville is the second generation reformer in Scotland that follows after Knox and actually kind of sets up the Presbyterian church and then gets locked in a tower, um, in the Tower of London by none other than King James of Bible fame. So, anyway, there, there are plenty of stories that go around, but these, they're, these are, they're all connected, right? And, and um, maybe, uh, maybe quickly the how, as we're moving past this thing. The darkness of the church, we've talked about a little bit. Mass communication was brought up by the back table over there, and that really is a major factor. Uh, printing explodes in the Reformation. Explodes. Like, I mean, there's... It's, it's a little bit like now, if you can think Twitter or other social media, things like that. That's an enormous amount of, like... Uh, communication and people saying things and, you know, it's, it's just way up top. And that was kind of going on in the Reformation as well. They, of course, had had printing before. Printing is not something particularly new, but being able to take it and move the type and set it and make a page that way rather than cast a full page, you know, for your printing, um, makes the printing much cheaper, brings down the price so, so, so far. And probably the most, well, one of the most 
um, popular productions is like a broad, if you call it broadsheet. It's just a sheet. Usually it has a picture on it because most people don't read. They can, they can see the nasty pictures. Anyway, I'm sure if you look up, uh, you know, broadsides from Reformation, plenty of them are pretty body, um, you know, body parts and things like that from devils and popes and Calvins and whatever else. They're kind of nasty. But there's also blurbs, and they're, they're kind of written to be, like, read in the tavern, right? read in the public houses, read on the street corners, read that kind of way. So, but there's an enormous amount of printing that goes out on all sides. Um, but um, anyway, that's, that's something all by itself that's pretty fascinating to see how this is a real fuel to the Reformation is this cheap, you know, reduced price of printing. And then the third one, Islamic invasions from Eastern Europe. That kept Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, occupied. Because Charles should have, remember, in, in Worms, that I think is in 1519. Um, so the 1517 is the 95 Theses, the like, explosion. Within a couple of years, there's the Diet, which is a, a, an official meeting of the emperor and his, uh, his, his, uh, his powers. And uh, anyway, it's at Worms, and remember, he gets safe conduct. Luther goes there. It's the whole famous, you know, God help me speech. And uh, then gets kidnapped afterwards and taken off to a castle to Wartburg, um, where he, you know, dresses up like a, a knight, is undercover, and, and, and spends his time writing, but particularly translating the New Testament into German. This is the beginning of his German Bible. Anyway, so Charles should have just crushed Luther. That's what should have happened. But Charles thought he kind of had taken care of it a little bit with this Diet of Worms, and he has some major issues in the East he's got to go pay attention to because uh, the Turks are coming uh, all the way to Vienna, all the way to you know, laying siege to the city of Vienna. He's got problems over there, and he's not too worried about this drunken little monk out in the middle of the woods of Germany. You know, he thinks he's done his job there, but he hasn't. Right? And, and it takes him years to get back to it before he finally comes back with his armies to Germany to destroy the German League called the Schmalkaldic League. It's a league of, of uh, Germans that banded together against the Holy Roman Emperor and against the Roman Catholic Church. So there's all of that kind of going on um, that allows the Reformation to move and many other things as well. And then we'll wrap up with kind of like Ed's comment there with the where. So the Reformation, once sparked by Luther's 95 Theses, spread over Western Europe fast. It went quickly through Western Europe all the way into Eastern Europe, into Hungary and other places. So it's not just a Western European phenomenon, even at the time. And then, of course, it floats all around to the New World as well. And then from the New World, it's taken out with missionaries. Right? So this kind of keeps going, um, just like history does, and just like the Church of Jesus Christ does, generation to generation. It doesn't stop. It keeps going. Um, so this is, for whatever it's worth, a little bit of an introduction, a glance at um, the Reformation and trying to get that thing in, in hand a little bit and, and, and why it's important. Any, any closing thoughts or questions? Well, if we lived in Germany, we'd be, it would be a holiday today. All right. holidays that's nice. <laughs> I think it's awesome. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and holidays are Far beyond. kind of important. They, they celebrate things when and we, uh, you, know, you see it all through Scripture. Hey, stop your work, take the day, worship the Lord, rejoice, uh, that kind of thing. So the holiday tradition is important and uh, uh, the Christian calendar is not something we think too much about anymore, but we yeah, we don't have a holiday We're celebrating the Reformation here in the United States, but we do have Halloween. Um, so you can do trunk or treat in, in good Reformed, you know, or whatever history historical fashion. You can do trunk or treat. That's what the Reformers would have done. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's good. They, uh, the Germans can take a day off today or tomorrow, I guess. Be tomorrow. Any any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Dave. 
Well, Tim, the Reformation, a lot of it happened because the Catholic Church and the rulers had been so polluted, they stole and perverted everything. You know what I'm saying? Don't, don't you agree? Sure. There's, there's major darkness in the church. Yeah. Well, my question is, when's the next Reformation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. No, serious. Yeah, do, sure. do, you think, do you think there's another one? Well, if you can, if you can, or anyone else can have the foresight to say, "Hey, that obscure monk in an obscure place posting an obscure document is going to start this thing," then maybe you can tell me when the next Reformation is going to be. You know what I mean? It's like God uses crazy stuff, little things, to generate enormous things, and we you don't know, figure that out. We look at it afterwards and say, "Oh, wow, there's some way I can see what God's doing," but in the middle of it, man, you can't tell. You know, that's kind of part part of the problem is just knowing our own time. Knowing this moment and how we're supposed to serve God here and what he's doing. What are you doing right now, God? When's it coming, right? Because we're always looking for this upsurge in, in Christian faithfulness and Christian truth and impact not only within the church but within society and so, so on. Uh, so we want that. But who knows how God does it, right? But we can pray for it and try to keep our eyes open. Looking at other examples of it in history, kind of seeing how these things have gone might help us as well to have our eyes more firmly open to see what's going on, but good. We want more Reformation. We don't want 130 years of outright bloodshed, though. I don't want that. I'd, I'd rather talk to a Roman Catholic priest than stick a shank in him. <laughs> yeah. There is a school of thought that the Reformation is not over its ongoing. Sure. Yeah, you bet. And that's that's a little bit of um, of that dating, just kind of bringing it into the new world or else. Yeah, that's the doctrines of the Reformation. Ideally, what we're trying to do is is to teach the Bible. So if, if biblical Christianity is over, then the Reformation is over. But it's not, and it never will be, and so it will never be over. There will always be a reforming, looking back to the Scriptures, trying to knock off the, the sinful, stupid stuff that we're doing as a church and be faithful, and that God would bless that faithfulness and prosper it. So with that in mind, let's, let's close. We're past our time here.